0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm chapter 10. I'll read the title of chapter 9 because 9 and 10 go together. It's to the choir master according to Mutlaban, a Psalm of David. But we'll pick up the reading now in chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we had seen from Psalm 9 that this is... This was talking about the nations and and David asking God to, to defeat and destroy the wicked nations. But now in the second half of the psalm, David points out that when, because this is now talking about stuff happening in villages. This isn't talking about nations invading. What's happening? Well, all too often, Israel is just like the nations. All too often, the church is just like the world and of course if this is according to moot laban according to death of a son this is talking about david's own experience of his son's rebellion but what prompted his son's rebellion well there was david's own sin even david was too often like the nations we saw last time that there's a there's a single acrostic poem each each of the stanzas it begins with a, a, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it was either written as one whole song or the first half was written at one time and then somebody was like, why is there only half a song? We should write the other half. I don't find that a very plausible argument. I think it was originally one song and they just divided it into two for some reason at some point. But either way, whether even if it was written with a second, with a second part, the second part was written to be considered with the first. So however... It's one of those things that so often when these questions arise in biblical scholarship, my answer is, so what? Either way, you're supposed to read it together. So let's read it together. But as we saw last time, according to Laban, according to death of a son, points us not only to the death of Absalom, but even more to the pattern of the cross. God was teaching David and Israel to see that glory only comes through affliction. If you have not experienced the gates of death, then you will not recount the praises of God in the gates of the daughter of Zion. And so we join King Jesus in giving thanks to God for God's wonderful deeds because God has maintained the just cause of his son, our Lord Jesus. And the Lord judges the world with righteousness and is a stronghold for the oppressed. And so we sing praises to the Lord. And when we are troubled... We may join in King Jesus' cry to the Lord, Be gracious to me, O Lord, that I may recount your praises. Because we know that as we are conformed to the likeness of Christ's sufferings, so also we will be conformed to the likeness of His glory. And Psalm 9 concluded by reminding us that God will not forget the poor. In the conflict between rebellious nations and the Lord God, we ask God to remind the nations that they are but men. Psalm 10 will... End, so that man, who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. Echoing, put them in fear, O Lord, the end of verse chapter 9. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. The, the future hope of the poor is not yet a present reality. And so we share the king's perplexity at why God seems so far away. And we unite in the king's confidence that God will make it right in the end. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, hear now the word of our God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. I chuckle when people ask me, so do you think we're living in the last times? I'm like, We've been living in the last times ever since Jesus rose from the dead, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and poured out his Holy Spirit. So, yes. Uh, but I may, you know, what you mean by the question and what I mean by the answer may not be the same thing. But Peter's question is, if we are living in the last days, which we are, how then should we live? Peter's very clear on this. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are to love as God has loved us, as Jesus has loved us. As Jesus has loved us? How did Jesus love? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our sufferings as Christians are not sort of incidental to our calling. They're at the very heart of what God has called us to, to do. Now Peter also says in verse 15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So if you suffer because of your own sin and stupidity, don't call that suffering for Jesus. Now, Psalm 9 set us up last week uh, as we look at Psalm 10 this week. And I, I opened the sermon last week by saying... If you have ever been afflicted, if you have ever suffered because of someone who was better connected, better able to manipulate the system, then you will understand how to sing Psalms 9 and 10. Now, as I said those words, I hadn't thought this before when I was, when I was working on the sermon, but as I said those words and I looked at you, I realized that you all share at least one example of this. Me. Who do you know who is well connected in a position of authority who knows how to manipulate a system? Um, <sighs> guilty as charged. Because I'm not perfect. If I if I ever start thinking I'm perfect, then I start thinking I'm Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And because I mean, this, as many of you, probably most of you, have experienced a conversation or more with me where. I've used my knowledge, authority, and experience to make myself look big and other people, maybe even you, feel small. That's wrong. That's not what knowledge, experience, and authority is for. Knowledge, experience, and authority is for loving and serving others, not for puffing up myself. Paul is rather clear knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That doesn't make knowledge wrong. It means that knowledge is not for that. Knowledge is for love. If I use it to make myself look big, then I'm a clanging gong. And I'm sorry, and I want to work on this. But I I realized that I I kind of got through last week's sermon without having to say that, but as I I didn't know quite how to say it, as I was was like, wait a second, this is me. Uh, But if I'm gonna keep going in the text, and talk about those who hotly pursue the poor, well, every time I've failed to love well, every time I've used knowledge for puffery, well, what is, the, what is the wicked doing in our passage? I was like, how can I possibly preach this passage if I don't own up to the fact that sometimes I've been that person? And it's small, very small comfort to remember that David was like this as well. I mean, the, the fact that death of a son reminds us of Absalom's rebellion and of David's sin that precedes it, There is no relief that comes from thinking, oh, well, David was as bad a sinner as I am, maybe even even worse. How does that make me feel any better? It doesn't. What brings relief, or better, who brings comfort, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who finally broke the arm of the wicked and overthrew the dragon so that the world, the flesh, and the devil might no longer have dominion. And so as we look at Psalm 10 today, we need to see how our Lord Jesus is the greater son of David who accomplishes what the David who lived and reigned 3,000 years ago could not possibly have done. Last time we saw that we are to join the king in giving thanks to God for his wonderful deeds. And we saw that we should echo the king's cry when we're in trouble But now we also, in in our passage for today, need to share the king's perplexity when God seems so far away. Because so often in those moments, God does seem so far away. And we should unite in the king's confidence that God will make all things right. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We heard about the times of trouble in chapter 9, verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. So which is it? Is the Lord a stronghold in times of trouble or does he hide himself in times of trouble? The two are not necessarily opposed. If you look back at the history of redemption, if you think back, I mean, we're we're used to, when we read the Old Testament, we, 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 we get the highlights. But think about all the generations in between. There are very few times when God acted and did mighty deeds to do something marvelous in the middle of history. There was the Exodus in the days of Moses. But I mean, you think back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There weren't a whole lot of divine interventions to do amazing things. There were, there, you know, There's a little bit here and there. But then they wind up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and there wasn't much going on then. And then there's there's a generation in the Exodus and then in the Conquest where God was doing mighty deeds. And then come the period of the judges where every once in a while there's a little, you know, every, you know, maybe 30, 40 years a judge is raised up to do something. And then come the time of the kings. And especially, obviously, the biggest one is when our Lord Jesus Christ came. But... Let's now, okay, all the generations in between didn't get to see much. They're singing Psalm 10, why do you hide yourself in troubled times? But even the people who experienced the great mighty deeds, they also experienced long stretches where they weren't seeing a thing. David needed the presence of God during the rebellion of Absalom. And for eight chapters of Second Samuel, God is silent. Where is God in the midst of David's distress? Where was God when Jesus experienced the hiddenness of God in Gethsemane and at the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same God who Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? A few hours later, he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. Is God a refuge in troubled times or is he distant? Yes. Yes. Those two things are not necessarily opposed. Experiencing the hiddenness of God, the distance of God is not at all opposed to finding refuge in him. The question is, will you take refuge in him in those times when he is hidden? Notice how Psalm 10 describes this hiddenness. The hiddenness of God in verses two to four is revealed in the prosperity of the wicked. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The heart of wickedness is rooted in this claim, there is no God. Now, it's it's important to say that David is not talking about capital A atheism. That's That's not the problem. Absalom and Ahithophel are both Yahweh worshipers. They both claim to believe in God. The problem is not theoretical atheism. The problem is practical atheism. What do I mean by practical atheism? Well, practical atheism is revealed when someone, in our text, hotly pursues the poor. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. The Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Therefore, the one who hotly pursues the poor is denying God. Anyone who oppresses, anyone who acts in a way that, that harms those under their care is at that moment a practical atheist. And practical atheism is revealed when someone boasts of the desires of their soul and thus the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Now, David couldn't bring himself to actually use the phrase curse Yahweh in Hebrew. So he actually in Hebrew it reads bless Yahweh. It's a euphemism. He just I understand. I mean, even even re- reading the the English here is a little bit disconcerting. Who wants to say curse the Lord? But in Hebrew, the way they would usually say this is they bless the Lord in and and. But they make clear from the context that this is not a blessing because the one greedy for gain blesses and renounces the Lord. Obviously, if you're renouncing the Lord, you're not blessing the Lord. What are you doing? You're actually cursing the Lord. So I I I agree with the English translators. In English, it's helpful to say curses. It's just, it's also not something we should like to say very often. But if, if where does this appear in our lives? Well, if, if we're obsessed with stuff, if we're greedy for gain, if we're putting acquisition of stuff ahead of our love for God, then you are cursing and renouncing the Lord. And then thirdly, practical atheism is revealed when someone does not seek the Lord. Oh boy. Maybe, maybe we thought on the first two that we, we oh well, that's, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not oppressing them. But if, if you're just too busy with your own thoughts and agenda to spend time pursuing God, if all your thoughts are, there is no God, that's what I do when I focus on my own influence and status. I'm basically saying, I don't, have, you know, I don't need God here, I got this. Well, I'm, that's, that's practical atheism. But this is, this is sobering. Because if God hides... And it makes sense. Because if God hides himself in times of trouble, then it's not surprising when people think they can ignore him. What's God going to do about it? He hasn't done anything yet. But this may also help us understand why God hides himself those of you who are parents. As a father, I I don't want my children to just be well-behaved when I'm present. I want them to love God and neighbor at all times. If I'm always there, if I'm always hovering to make sure they do the right thing, then how will they develop their own sense of what it means to love God and neighbor? There are times when we need to be absent from the situation in order to let them figure out, oh, what does it mean for me to love God and neighbor? In the same way, God hides himself to see, will we love him or will we curse him? Are we practical atheists? Do we profess to believe in God in front of others, but secretly pursue our own selfish desires when no one else is watching? What you do when no one else is watching Will tell you whether you're a practical atheist. Who? I think I just stopped preaching and started meddling. Because this is this is the problem for all of us. I know it's a problem for me. And I think I know most of you well enough to know it's a problem for you, too. Because we wind up turning away from loving God and neighbor very easily. And sometimes we may even think I'm doing this out of love for God. But are we? Verses 5 and 6 reflect on the inner thoughts of the practical atheist. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. He thinks no one can touch him. Sometimes... You look at the rich, the famous, the powerful, it looks like they're untouchable. It doesn't matter what grievous things they've done, I shall not be moved. And not surprisingly, verses 7 to 11 point out that if if you don't fear God, then you will do whatever you want to others. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Notice how in verse 11, the wicked still knows that God exists. Confirms our diagnosis of practical atheism, not just theoretical atheism. God has forgotten; he has hidden his face; he will never see it. Where does practical atheism start? Well, as we saw in verses two through six, it starts in, in the whole in the soul in verse three, in the heart, verse six, and uh, in Hebrew, the the heart is the the thinking organ at heart, the heart of the wicked is the conviction that God won't do anything to stop me. Well, if you believe that God won't do anything to stop you, what will you do next? God's not going to... Oh, God won't stop me. So, just look at all the terrible things people say. Curses, deceit, oppression, mischief, and iniquity. Truly, words are powerful. Words have the power to heal and to comfort. But they also have the power to tear down and destroy. Think of the wicked man sitting in ambush in the village. He has set up his target through cunning words, deceit and oppression. He's set up his target. He's got other people now thinking badly of that person. Now he lurks in ambush like a lion in a thicket. He lurks so that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. yes, it all started in the heart of the wicked, but then the plan came forth in the words. If someone had stood up for the helpless, if someone had said something back in verse 7, perhaps the power of the wicked could have been thwarted. But no, we were silent in a just cause, and so the helpless were overpowered and crushed. And now we come to a second reason for why God is hidden. Why does God hide himself in times of trouble? because he has created us in his image so that we might reflect his care and love for the poor. Sometimes God is silent so that we can speak with his voice, so that we can speak and act in a situation that needs someone to speak and act. Sometimes it may appear that all you see is greed and puffery. As we think about what it means to care for the poor, There's all sorts of discussion that goes on about U.S. immigration policy. And I'm not going to try to suggest what a good policy looks like. But whatever policy you advocate, make sure that it does not hand over the helpless to the wicked. (laughs) How are you going to avoid that? That's a interesting challenge. Be careful in your assumptions about who the wicked are. Uh, The psalmist says the wicked are those who are greedy for gain and thereby renounce the Lord and mistreat the poor and helpless. Sometimes you look around and say it looks like all I'm seeing is greed and puffery. And that's why the psalmist cries out to God, because when all you can see is greed and puffery, you know that our only hope is that God will make it right. And that's where the psalmist concludes. Because in verse 1, the question was, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now the question in verses 12 and 13 is, Why does the wicked renounce God? Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? In chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, we heard that the needy would not always be forgotten. Rather, the nations that forget God will will, will turn to Sheol, And now we join together with Israel's king, with our Lord Jesus, as we plead with God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Do as you have promised, O Lord. As we reflect on the practical atheist, why? Why does the wicked say in his heart, you will not call to account? Why do people think that they can get away with this forever? They know God exists. They're simply banking on the possibility that God will forget that's I'm really banking on the idea that God will forget. What are the odds of that? An omniscient omnipotent deity who has promised that he will judge all nations and make all things right in the end maybe I can get away with it really? And again to quote Mark Hansen sin makes you stupid. this is our problem sin, sin makes us stupid we think we can get away with something before the eyes of an almighty God. Because as verses 14 and 15 say, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. In you, O Lord, the helpless has a helper. And yes, this is the same word that was used in Genesis two when God created Eve to be a helper. That in you, you are the helper of the fatherless. God is the one who does for the helpless what he could, what the helpless could not possibly do for himself. God is the protector of the widow who would be destroyed if she were left alone. God rescues the orphan who has no future. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. And so David asks God to break the arm of the wicked. Now, why is David saying that? Isn't David the king? Couldn't he just do it himself? Didn't we just hear that God puts people in the position of doing what they're called to do? But no, David alone is not going to be able to do this. Part of it is David was overthrown by a coup led by his son Absalom. And even after Absalom's rebellion was quashed, Sheba, the son of Bichri, rose up and took most of Israel with him. The king can say, here's what should be done. But his justice will only be as sound as the judges and magistrates who execute his decrees. And if they're all in rebellion against him, even the king says, oh Lord, you got to do this because I'm not God. And even our, even David would say, "I'm not Jesus." <laughs> David could not be what we need. Even King David must declare verse sixteen, "The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land behind and above David's kingship. The Lord is king forever. The problem is that the king's justice will only be as sound as those who execute his decrees. We need a king who will rule forever. So long as David's kingship and God's kingship remain divided, there will be no righteousness on earth. In other words, Psalm 9 and 10 was the perfect text to follow Christmas. Psalm 9 and 10 leaves us with the conviction that the Davidic kingship will only bring justice and righteousness when God himself becomes king, when there is a king who is both God and man, son of God and son of David. And that's the king who now sits on the throne. King Jesus is the Lord who is king forever and ever. And it still remains that the king's justice is only as sound as those who put his decrees into practice. And that's part of our challenge as elders and deacons in the church of our Lord Jesus. Because Jesus has appointed his ministers to declare his word to his people. He's appointed his elders to shepherd the flock under our care. It's a sobering reminder to those who hold office in the church because we are called to execute the decrees of King Jesus, not our own ideas. And people will judge Jesus based on us. And that's not a problem. That's the way Jesus said it should be. Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus went on to pray for us in John 17 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If Christians are not one if we do not love one another then the world has no reason to believe that the Father sent the Son. The glory that you have given me," Jesus says in John 17:22 and 23. "The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The king's justice is only as sound as those who execute his decrees. That's why it's right for unbelievers to expect more of Christians than they do of pagans. Those who believe in Jesus should be held to a higher standard than those who don't. But but the standard that we're held to is is not the world standard. The standard we're held to is Jesus standard. It's not are Christians the nicest people, the most tolerant people, the most enlightened people? Those aren't the questions. The question is do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Do the afflicted and the oppressed find refuge in the church of Jesus Christ? Are we a place where the weary find rest? Are we a people who reflect the justice of our Lord Jesus? Now, there is another side to that refuge language. The oppressor must find no comfort in the church. When I act like one, I need to be called to account. Remember the language of verse 15 where David called on God to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Or here in verse 16, the nations perish from his land. This language of perish has been running all through this opening part of the Psalms. Psalm 1, the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 5, you destroy, actually same verb, you cause to perish those who speak lies. Psalm 9, three times, they perished before your presence. You made the wicked perish. The very memory of them has perished. And now the nations perish from his land. As the gospel goes forth and brings justice to the earth, the wicked nations perish. But that's not just talking about, oh, those wicked people out there. Remember, we're talking about the church. David's talking about Israel. We're talking about the people of God. The church, we need to make sure that when there is oppression and abuse that it's dealt with. That we're saying, no, that's not okay. Things cannot continue. We ask God to do this because he is the one who does hear the cry of the helpless. O Lord, verse 17, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. To do justice means to make things right for them. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed means to make sure that they obtain justice, that they are not mistreated. You hear the desire of the afflicted. God will make all things right. You can see how this one sentence has so much to connect us. God will make all things right. Man who is of the earth inflicts terror, but God is the one who brings justice. God will make all things right. But also, God will make all things right. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. We don't see it yet. Even those who are rulers on the earth like elders in the church today are not always able to bring justice. We, we are not Jesus, but we are Jesus' instruments. And that's why it's important to say that God will make all things right to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. God makes it right. He does justice when all the earth will stand before God. And God will make all things right so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And there was no more sea. And there, when the, the, the vision that John sees in Revelation of that, that when God makes all things right, there will be no more sin, no more sorrow. He will wipe away every tear. He will make all things right. That is where the story is going. And that is why, as we walk before him, we need to live day by day seeking to make things right, to do justice for to the oppressed, for the oppressed that they might find refuge and comfort in the midst of a world that is way out of control. So let's pray and ask God for mercy. Help us, Lord, because we are weak and frail, and we too often we too often forget you and are practical atheists, living for our own glory and not for yours. Have mercy and forgive us. Forgive me for how I have done this. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to to walk humbly before you, to trust your promises and to live as those who walk humbly before you. In Jesus' name, amen.